Well, good morning, Gilbert Redemption. Great to be here with you guys. Uh, I'm a native. Anybody here a native? A couple natives? Why do we not get a discount on a license or something? There ought to be some benefit. The only thing it means is you have uh, valley fever in you. You understand that? It's just, we got it. We get it. Uh, I also went to high school here. I went to Scottsdale High, which now if you drive in Old Town Scottsdale, there's just a sign to remember us, Scottsdale High. I guess they... I guess they looked at the alumni record and said, oh, we got to run this down. It's not working. So then I went to Arizona State, huh? Sun Devils in the house. Come on. And uh, got very involved in the fraternity life. I was a SIGEP and uh, I was involved in student government. I was a devil's advocate. That's what they called it. A devil's advocate was uh, someone who would go to high school campuses and tell kids why they should go to ASU and not the U of A. Sorry to offend you. That's what we did, you know. And uh, it was on a Sunday morning, I'd been uh, doing a lot of fraternizing, if you know what I mean, and sipping my uh, go-to 7-Up and salting crackers when uh, really the nerd of the frat came into my dorm room. Uh, Jeff, uh, there was just nothing cool about Jeff. Uh, Jeff was undersized, he was always the last guy picked in basketball, he, his complexion was awful, his voice was still changing. And uh, he drove a Studebaker that his, you don't even know what that is, most of you, was an old car. His granddad gave him, he grew up in Tucson and he came to ASU, what was he thinking? And uh, he was in the marching band, so he's always drumming all the time, drumming on the lunch table, drumming. And if, to make it worse, he loved Jesus. And so that was his mission. He's going to win these guys to Christ. So he comes in. He's a biology major. He starts telling me all the things you do to your body when you over-imbibe in alcohol. You know, there's this many brain cells, this many liver. And normally I would have said, Patterson, get out of here. But for some reason I kept listening. And then he asked me the big question. He said, Sandy, if you died today, where would you be? And I'd gone to church. Mom had drug us four boys to church, you know, and... Uh, so I had an idea of God and knew the information about Jesus. I thought, well, it's probably a curve. I think I'm a C minus, Jeff. I think I'll make it. There's guys here a lot worse than me. You know that. And he looked at me straight in the eye. I'll never forget. And he said, well, I know. And it's like the room got thick. I said, well, how can you know? Well, just admit it. And so he went back to his room, and he came back with a little brochure, the four spiritual laws, that track. Some of you know that track. And uh, Walk me through the four points. God loves you as a plan for your life. Well, I, I hope that's so, because I don't have a clue what I'm going to do with my life. Uh, sin has separated you from God. Well, I couldn't argue my way out of that one. I was laying in the midst of that. Law three, Jesus died for you on the cross. And I knew that information, right? I'd heard that at church. But it was the fourth one. You've got to personally do something about it. And uh, I remember Jeff said kind of apologetically, you wouldn't want to pray this prayer, would you? And I said... Jeff, I think this is what I've been looking for all my life. And uh, for me, yeah, it was a woo moment. I'm glad we got some noisy white believers here. That's really encouraging. Uh, it's like I'd been wearing the wrong pair of glasses. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, it's all about you. And you made the world. And uh, I, I called uh, my girlfriend, Margie, the straight A nursing student uh, who said, what do you mean you became a Christian? You're not a Muslim. You're always a Christian. What are you talking about? And uh, four days later, I led her to the Lord, and uh, we've now, uh, yeah, yeah, and she's still, she married me. 
And, uh, and that was a bait and switch, because when we got married, she thought I was a financial planner, and then I started doing Young Life at Chaparral High School. I was the dumb frat guy that would, have you seen that skit where they take a glass of water, and one guy brushes his teeth, another guy gargles, another guy shaves, and another guy clears his throat, and then they hand it to me, and I drink it. I was that guy, yeah. And uh, I just started getting more and more a heart to want to talk to people about Christ and his word, and... Uh, uh, she has been with me for 45 years now, and four kids, yeah. Wow, you guys, what else can I say that'll make you applaud? Let's see, when I, but here's what, I, here's what I've come to see. We have entered eternity. Eternity does not start when you die. We are in eternity now. Your physical life, if I could tie a string to that wall and run it all the way to that wall and that was all of human history and we were going to plot where you f occur, we'd have to get a really sharp pencil, right? A really sharp pencil and just make a, a little dot and that's your physical life on the planet. Ecclesiastes 1, vanity, you're like vapor. You just come and go. But your eternal life, that's now and going on forever. So we are in eternal life now. So what we need to understand is that it's you that will step in eternity when you shed this tent. It's you. You are not going to be zapped and suddenly become a spiritual juggernaut. It will be you. That's why this life matters. That's why all that you learn and understand matters into eternity. All that you suffer matters into eternity. I love the truth that every tear is caught in a bowl, revelation. Every tear, it all matters. All the suffering matters. And those who feel like they are the last and the least and the losers will be surprised to find they are in the front row in the kingdom. So who you are now, that's who's walking into eternity. Not some zap, super spiritual you, it's you. So that's why this life does matter. It's so important. It's not just, we'll get through till heaven. It's you that walks into eternity, and eternity has started. Why do I know that? Because that's what the Word says. See, the king came. Oh, that beautiful, beautiful, uh, brave, fierce, merciful King Jesus came. And they killed him. And they had their way with him and did their worst to him. But you know what? He rose. Amen? He rose. And he said, this is what they'll do to me. In three days, I'll be alive. And so now we can say, this is true. That's why I believe this book, because Jesus is alive. And when Jesus was teaching, he talked about Abraham. And he talked about Moses. He talked about David. He talked about Jonah talked about Isaiah and Elijah. So he validated all these people, all these stories. This book now has been validated by the risen Christ himself. So he'll say in the great Sermon on the Mount, not one period or comma, not one jot or tittle is going to disappear from this book until it all gets fulfilled. So today we're going to open up the, the old story of Nehemiah. We're not just opening it up because it might have some nice lessons. It's the living Word of God. Can you imagine? Eternity has started. Well, let's, let's look. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. By the way, I am so honored to be here. I've been a, a fan 
of East Valley Bible Church and then the redemption movement with Tom and with Tyler and to be asked to be part of that is just uh, such a sweet gift from the Lord after retiring from 40 years of ministry. Yeah, I started when I was seven in ministry and <laughs> as a prodigy. So I'm delighted to be here and for Paul to let me come into his pulpit. Uh, you got a wonderful pastor in Paul, don't you? That brother has a heart for Christ, yeah. Uh, although it did make me nervous because he's here today. Usually, you know, you're preaching because the guy's out of town. So if he's here, I'm thinking he doesn't have full confidence in me yet. So he's, he's checking it out. He knows he could come up and, you know, Sandy, that's good. Let's have a seat and clean it up. Nehemiah 5. There's two kinds of opposition. Two kinds of attacks. Whether it's a family, a marriage, uh, whether it's a business, a church, a nation. There's the external attacks. When enemies come out, you come at you from outside, like those uh, Sanballat and those dudes in the early chapters that you've read about that wanted to stop the building of the wall. And, and it seemed that the more that they tried to attack, the stronger and more committed that Nehemiah and the people got to, to do the project. It's the same with the family. You can all be you know, hard on each other, beating up on each other in the family, but then someone does something to you know, steal the family dog and you're an army ready to go to war. I mean, when someone from outside dares to do something with the family, it's a different experience. Same with the nation. We can have lots of infighting, but someone attacks us, and now we're united against that common enemy. But the most dangerous opposition is from within. When, when things are starting to break down in the family, in the church, in the nation, and that's what Nehemiah recognizes is about to happen here in chapter 5, and he deals with it masterfully. This book, as perhaps you've already discovered, is just a great manual, a great treatise on leadership. Uh, you might have thought when you read, you know, Nehemiah's the cupbearer to the king. Well, he didn't have much going. I mean, cupbearers are a dime a dozen, right? You, you sip the wine. If you die, get a new one so we won't drink that bottle. But he actually was a much more talented, gifted, trusted ear to the king himself. And we're seeing that exposed as we walk through this book. This guy knew how to lead and we benefit from his lessons. It's also a book that reminds us there's things that make God's people different from everybody else. And through the course of the Old Testament and even the history now of the church, we can see that when the church loses its distinctiveness, Jesus called it, when you lose your saltiness, what good are you? And that's the truth. We, we should be a distinctive people. Peter called it a, a peculiar people. There should be something different about us that for those who are genuinely seeking to know God and, and the hope of Christ will be drawn to the fact that we're not like everybody else out there, that there's some things we do differently. There's some things we believe that aren't the same as in the culture around us. And Nehemiah is a book about hanging on to the distinctives. So let's... Look again, chapter 5, verse 1. There was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. They said, we, our sons and our daughters, are many, and yet there's not enough food. We're hungry. Nehemiah, we, we need food. 
And others who said, we're mortgaging our fields, verse 3, our vineyards, our houses, so that we can get grain because of the famine. We're, we're having to get a second mortgage on our house just to buy groceries. That's pretty desperate. You get a second mortgage for something fun like put in a swimming pool or buy a car or something. Just to buy groceries, it's that bad. In fact, look, it gets even darker. There were those who said, verse 4, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, verse 5, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Yes, that was an option in the Old Testament, is that if you had nothing else to use for collateral, nothing else to sell, nothing else to mortgage, you could actually mortgage yourself or family members as indentured servants of the person to whom you owed that money and for a period of time, in fact, God anticipated this is what could happen. And so he spoke, he addressed it in uh, the law, Leviticus. Let me read this. This is really good. If I can find the right passage, it'll be really good. You'll be glad I read it. 25, Leviticus 25, verse 39. If a countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you, you shall not subject him to a slave service. That is, you're going to treat him better than a slave. He'll, he'll be to you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. You shall serve, he shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his sons with him, go back to his family, return. So God had built into the Old Testament, did you know this? This wonderful year of Jubilee, that every, every seven years, the, debts, the books were cleared. So it wasn't hopeless. You weren't buried hopelessly in debt that after seven years you were released to start fresh again. So God shows even in the Old Testament law that someone characterizes, well, that's the, the harsh God of the law. I don't really like that God. Oh, no, you don't know. You, have you read it? There's mercy. There's mercy all through the Old Testament. Mercy, because that's God's heart. He's a God of mercy. And so he says, even in Leviticus, if things are so bad that your neighbor says, I've got to sell myself to as your slave. I have nothing else to give you for this debt. His mercy says, well, treat him well. Treat him like an employee, a hired man. Don't treat him like a slave that's less than you. God's mercy. Well, that's how bad it was here in Judea. And the people are saying, Nehemiah, we can't even buy food now, and we're in debt to our own brothers. They knew this could happen with the other nations around them, but to be in debt to their own brothers, it, it makes me think of what happened in the pandemic. Y'all remember that, right? And uh, first, they, they said, now, we need you to close your businesses. Any business owners here? Still going to church? God bless you. Uh, they said, well, just close your business. And we thought, well, it'd be about a month, right? We'll just close for a month so we get a handle on the pandemic, and then everybody can go back. And then it was two months. Then it was six months. Now it's a year, and some businesses around the country are just starting to open. And so you understand that anger, that frustration. Hey, we were going to play ball. We, we would close. I have no income. I've had to release my employees. They don't have work. We've played ball, but now we're a little ticked. 
This has gone on all along. You understand that frustration when you thought you were going along to help be part of the community, and now you've paid a really heavy price. That's what's going on in Nehemiah 5. People said, we understood that it might cost us to be part of this rebuilding project, and we might have to take some debts for a season, but we didn't think it, it would go this far, and now our own brothers and sisters, our own Jewish friends are charging us interest. What they would say is, uh, hey, it's just business. Have you heard that before? Nothing personal, it's just business. I, I have a legal right, you owe me this, I have a right to charge some interest. I mean, i I got to make a living too, you've heard that. Well, Nehemiah's not buying it. When he heard this, verse 6, can you see, I was very angry because I heard their outcry and their words. Wisely, he didn't react in anger. That's, that's a lesson for some of us right there. I consulted with myself. He's not crazy. He's not hearing voices. He's pausing. Wait, what's, what do I need to do, Lord? He prayed. And then I contended with the nobles and the rulers. I said to them, you're exacting usury. That's interest, each from his brother. And so he called a great meeting and said, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. And the key line we'll come back to in a minute, verse 9. The things which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? We'll come back to that. But his anger is that these Jewish business people are taking advantage of a crisis. That sounds familiar. They see an opportunity to enrich themselves at the expense of their own countrymen. They're showing no mercy for the situation. And mercy is huge to God. Let me I just share a couple Old Testament examples of where God speaks about mercy. If you've read the prophets, they'll say things like, I'm tired of your ceremonies. I'm tired of your religious sacrifices. I'd like you to just show mercy. I'd like to see a heart, not just you know, religious obedience. Here's how uh, Hosea puts it, Hosea chapter 12. Therefore, return to God, the prophet said. Observe kindness or mercy, same word, and justice, and wait for your God. Observe kindness, mercy, and justice, and wait for your God. That's what God's looking for. In other words, you want God to bless you? That was going on in Hosea's day. You want God to hear your prayers? Well, it's not about your religious ceremonies. It's about your heart. Are you people of mercy? Are you people of kindness? And then this is the one that's well known to many of you, Micah 6, 8, right? You could probably sing the song we've written to that, Micah 6, 8. Behold, O man, he has told you what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do three things. To do justice, that is to do the right thing, to love kindness, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's still the things that move the heart of God. Men and women who do the right thing when it's an option to not. Men and women who show mercy when they may have a legal right not to. When the law may be on their side to demand what's theirs, they might even want to say, well, it's just. But God says, I'm looking for people who, even when they have a right to punish, give mercy. People who walk humbly with their God because they know he sees. He sees. 
the great, uh, the great mark of a Christian man and woman is when they can extend mercy to others because they understand you have received great mercy, have you not? If you know the Savior, you have received great mercy. In fact, Jesus has that great story, a parable about a man who had a huge debt to his master, and the master cut his debt in half, and he said, oh, thanks a lot, and then he went out there and beat up on all the people that owed him. Jesus says, don't you get it? That how, if you have received mercy, how can you not be a person that extends mercy to others? In fact, his comment is in, in verse 9 of Nehemiah 5. He says, you're not walking in the fear of God, and because of this, the reproach of the nations, our enemies, is on us. And, and that's still true. When Christians act without mercy, it doesn't speak well of our Savior. It doesn't speak well of our gospel. It's a clue. People who are living in legalism, people who are earning their way to God, people who are performing for God, they're judging everybody else, and they're not people of mercy. They're people of self-righteousness. And that never wins anyone to the Savior. Be a person of mercy. Make mercy a high value, particularly when we can show mercy to those who never thought they'd receive it. That's really fun. And that's really honoring to the Savior. That might be a fun thing to pray this week. God, show me someone who would not expect me to show mercy to them, to show kindness to them. The other great takeaway for you and me, though, again, is verse 9. Nehemiah calls all the nobles together, says what you're doing is wrong, he does it in front of all the people, so they're, they're caught, so they're just quiet. That's what the, Nehemiah says when I expose their, their sin against their brothers and sisters. They were just quiet. They'd been caught. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay it back. I want you to pay back the interest. They all agree. He says, to make sure you do it, I'm going to bring in the priest. So he brings in the priest and makes everybody sign, okay, before God, I'm going to do the right thing. And all the people are grateful, the end of uh, verse 13. But what Nehemiah says in verse 9 is a great truth for you and me today. The big issue is that they, they did not fear God. They didn't consider that God was seen. Yeah, it's business. This guy owes you. You can make him pay. You can tack on interest. Everybody does it. Everybody understands. It's just business. But they didn't stop to think, well, what does God think about the fear of God. Uh, to fear God is not this. It's not walking around like this, oh, don't zap me. Oh, I should have done that. Oh, I know he's going oh, oh, to take that away. Oh, he's, oh I'm going to lose this. That's not the fear of God. That's awful. That brings God no joy. The fear of God simply means this, friend, that he is, that you know that he is and that he sees and that he'll respond. The fear of God is to know that he is, that he sees, and that he will respond. Uh, the writer to Hebrews defined faith this way. Hebrews 11. This is faith, to believe that God is, and listen, that he rewards those who seek him. So part of fearing God is knowing he sees and he rewards. Galatians chapter 6. God's not fooled. God's not mocked. As you sow, you'll reap. 
and it's exponential. Just like when you throw a seed in the ground, you get a lot more from that seed than you put in the ground, so in your life, you put some acts of mercy in the ground, you will receive more. You put acts of selfishness, of meanness, of sin in the ground, you will exact a heavier price than what you sowed. God's not fooled. So fearing God is just understanding this is how the kingdom works. God sees. Maybe you've seen some of those visions that the prophets have, like Ezekiel or John in the book of Revelation. They'll have these visions where they'll see these creatures that are full of eyes. And you think, well, what, what's all these creatures with all these eyes? Well, what they're saying is God sees. He sees. Moses wrote, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for those on whose behalf he can show himself strong. He's not looking around to see who he can zap and punish and, ah, I got her, I caught him. No, he's looking to see who he can bless. That's the heart of our God. But for those who are mocking him, who are you know, going to church and shaking hands and then taking advantage of those who have less during the week, God wants them to know, you're not fooling me. You're not fooling me. I see it. That's what the fear of the Lord is. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 6 says, this is where getting smart starts. It starts with fearing God. If you don't fear God, you can't have a democracy. If you have a bunch of people, and the only reason they do the right thing is so uh, they might get caught, we're in trouble. I mean, if you've raised kids, anybody here raising kids? God bless you, moment of silence. Uh, you don't want your kids to do what you say just because, well, I know you'll spank me or something, or I'll lose my telephone or something. That's, you want them to do the right thing because it's the right thing, right, parents? And it takes a while to, to draw that out of them, but that's what you want. You want them to want to do the right thing. And so when we have a culture of people who are only doing what's right, by law, lest they get caught, we're in trouble, and that sounds a lot like the day in which we live. Fear of the Lord. I remember I read uh, this French researcher. You remember this back in the turn of the century? He came to discover what makes America so great, de Tocqueville. Did you hear that one? De Tocqueville had this great line. As he studied America, and he went to the factories, he went to the schools, he went to the churches, he had this great, simple statement. He says, America is great because America is good. But when she fails to be good, she will fail to be great. Those were prophetic words. And by good, he meant a people who lived under the fear of God. It's on our money. We understood early on there's a God who sees. That's good news for the righteous. Good news for the righteous. Jesus said it like this. You can't give a cup of cold water to one of my people and I miss it. I see it all. Even a simple act of kindness like that. He sees it all. Friend, he saw your kindness to that waitress. Waitress, he saw your kindness to that surly customer. He saw your kindness to that older person, that family member who's always sarcastic and mean, and yet you were kind. Jesus says, I saw it. In fact, Jesus makes the point in the Sermon on the Mount, when no one else knows but God, 
Now you've got God's attention. Remember that? Matthew 6, he said, when you give, don't give with a big announcement. Hey, look at I'm writing a check for a thousand bucks to, you know, Redemption Gilbert. Okay, there's your badge. You're rewarded. No, he said, when you give, just let God know. In fact, when you can give anonymously, have you ever done that? That's really fun. Just give anonymously. I remember in seminary, we were broke. I, we'd paid all our bills. The only problem is we had no money left to buy any food. And I went to my mailbox that Monday at the seminary and opened up the mailbox, and there was an envelope with my name on it with uh, enough money to fill up my tank and buy milk and bread and peanut butter. We were set for a good three days. Kind of boring eating, but we were covered, you know? It was, and no name, someone just got joy out of blessing me and what it did for my faith because God told somebody that the Masons need food. The fear of God. Make it a gift to you that God sees. Those things, you, those sweet prayers that you give with your tears over a person that has no idea and if they heard you were praying for them might mock you. And yet you pray for them. Friend, Jesus sees that. Not lost on him. He sees it. But if you are a fake, if you are one of those people that loves to give the impression of righteousness and religiosity, but your heart is dark and it's all about you, well, he sees that too. I got a story. This is a great story. It's true. Honest, it's true. I have a buddy who's a Methodist pastor now of a very large church in Nebraska, but when he was starting out, some of you uh, know if you're from the Midwest, there'd be a little, little country church between the fields, and you might have 40, 50 people, and so you'd have itinerant pastor, remember that? And he might have two or three churches that he had to go to on a Sunday to cover the ground for those, and that's what my Methodist buddy did. He had two churches, little small country churches. He'd preach at one at 8 or 8.30, and the next one at 10, or however soon he could get to the next church. And it, uh, this terrible gossip was starting in one church, saying things about him and his motivation and, and that he wasn't very good and just terrible gossip, how it can start little and then it turns into something. And uh, he, he discovered that it was this one woman in particular that didn't like him and she's the one that was dropping all these things. In fact, she'd even sit as he preached and kind of roll her eyes and look at her friends like, see what I mean? He can't hardly say his name, let alone preach the gospel. Well, no kidding, he didn't know what to do. He's a young pastor. He was a little intimidated to confront the woman. He didn't really have evidence. You know, No one wanted to come forward and say, oh, she's the one, but he knew. So he just prayed, God, something's got to happen. Either she's got to go or I got to go, but this, this is becoming a mess. No kidding. He said, one Sunday morning, I did the benediction, and everybody walked out the back doors. She hit the first step and dropped dead. He said, you know, funny thing, no one gossiped anymore in that church for a long time. It's kind of like Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know that story in the New Testament? Hey, we're going to take an offering. If you can sell property, whatever. Okay, Ananias, Sapphira, what'd you go? Oh, we sold our, that property we had up in Sholo, sold it for $100,000. we are giving the whole thing to the church. Everybody, all right. Truth was they sold it for $150,000 and pocketed fifty, dollars but they don't want to tell anybody. And so Peter said, you know, it's time for an illustration and boom, they went down. And the Bible says, the fear of God spread through the whole church. 
I've prayed for that sometimes, some people. No, I haven't. I'm a nice pastor. I would never pray that would happen. The Lord sees. The Lord knows. Be encouraged. You're that person that does those quiet acts of kindness. You, you agonize in prayer for people that would say stop it if they knew you're praying for them, but you keep praying. It's seen, friend. It's seen. No wasted tears. No wasted small acts of mercy. That thrills the heart of Jesus, and that represents him well. Represents him well. So, Nehemiah gets the people to repent. They say, we'll give back, verse 12, whatever we took, we'll give back, uh, just as you said, the people celebrate. And then as kind of a postscript in verses 14 to 19 of that chapter, Nehemiah lets us know that, uh, you know, I had an a amount of money, that, an expense account, as it were, that was my right as the governor to extract for my expenses for feeding my staff and I think he's you know I had like 4,300 oxen a year less there that they went through and feeding everybody he says I could have rightfully demanded repayment for that and I said no I didn't want to add any extra burden so what Nehemiah models for us another great leadership principle is that he was going to sacrifice like everybody else he wasn't just going to do what was his legal right to take but he would give that up in this unique season. And then this prayer he has, we'll close with this, verse 19. He says, remember me, O God, for good, according to all that I've done for this people. You know, sometimes folks can get so spiritual-minded that they think, well, I, you know, that's, that's an immature prayer. I, I never ask God to reward me, remember me. I, it's just enough that he died for me. And, you know, you don't need to be that spiritual. It's good to know you're going to be rewarded. Rewards are all through the scriptures. You reward your children. The Father wants to reward you. Remember the, the definition of faith, Hebrews 11? To know that he is and what? That he rewards those who seek him. Don't, don't be afraid to say, God, I, this costs me, and I did it for you. Don't forget. Lord, I'm, I'm really working on purity, and it's hard. And it's painful. And sometimes I fail, but I want you to know I'm doing this for you. Don't forget. Lord, I'm in a tough relationship. It would be easy to run, but I'm not going to run. I'm, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to keep working. Please don't forget. That's a godly prayer. That's a godly prayer. And he will not. And he sees. He sees you. And he knows your acts of mercy. He knows your acts of kindness. Particularly those people who don't think they deserve it. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you're a God who sees. And I know you see some things I do that are embarrassing and not worthy of your name. And I thank you for grace to forgive me. But I thank you too for the fun of praying and giving and serving and being kind the people that can't pay me back, but you know, you know. Lord, help us live in your presence that you see, that you know, and that you're with us. Not to fear you as a fear of punishment, but in reality.
that I am living in the presence of the living God. To the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.